According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be, <coughs> be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again. We are in Philippians chapter 1, <coughs> verses 21 and following. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And uh, we're going to work our way through Paul's uh, conundrum as he thinks his way through all this. Uh, as we did Sunday morning, picking up where we left off on Sunday morning, and then getting to the conclusion of uh, chapter 1, which is verses 27 through 30, as uh, Paul has a, a great exhortation and admonishment for the Philippian believers to, uh, to obey. Before we do any of that though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father to shape our thinking, to teach us, to open our eyes, and to protect us while we're assembled here tonight. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for your mercy, calling upon your faithfulness tonight, Father, as we study to show ourselves approved. Uh, we thank you, Father, that you've given us all things necessary for life and godliness. And we uh, are so hungry tonight to feast and to learn and to grow. And uh, just thank you for your faithfulness to make this possible. And Father, we do pray for um, the circumstances there in Sutherland Springs and for the survivors, the family members and friends and loved ones of those that, that uh, were killed. Father, we uh, just claim Romans 8.28 and look forward to seeing how you prove yourself faithful, how you work all things together for good. I've already, Father, because of this, I've heard, I've heard Bible verses on national television and I've heard pastors testifying to eternal life. And, and, uh, and I thank you for that, Father. And this, this congregation is having an impact maybe they never would have had otherwise. And and yet here it is. So Father, we do pray for them and we love them and we just uh, thank you for being faithful. So Father, hedge us about, protect us tonight, bless, uh, bless what we do here. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Alrighty, uh, we can take a few questions as we get started tonight. And uh, in fact, I think I'm, I'm not aware of any that, that came by email. So uh, we'll just uh, start off with the first question from the floor. If we have a microphone ready to go. And a microphone runner. And it's Lewis again tonight, so feel free to run him ragged. <coughs> All right. Yes, sir. Yeah, my question is in Matthew 2530. We had uh, looked at that a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Now, the servant, he's a believer. So this weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is similar language at the judgment seat, is that due to him being totally upset about loss of rewards and shame or... Yeah, I take this as an unbeliever, and it's, it's, it's very debated, and there's a lot of uh, bad approaches to Matthew 25, and so I try to keep it simple and avoid the bad approaches to Matthew 25. Um, but I do accept that the outer darkness and the weeping and gnashing of teeth is um, hell. I mean, that's, that's what it is in all the other places you have outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, and here likewise. Um, it bothers some people, though, because he's given a talent the way the others are also given talents. And so sometimes he's thought of as a believer. Well, how does a believer go to hell, right? And so then now you've got conundrums. Now you've got to resolve it one way or the other. Calvinists answer it one way, Arminians answer it another way, and, and we're neither, so we want to answer it a biblical way as far as that goes. The thing that really helps me, and I taught this when we taught this in the Life of Christ class, is to recognize that the... the uh, uh, Mount Olivet Discourse, which is Matthew 24 and 25, is not given to the church, it's given to Israel. And it's a prophetic message for Israel as they anticipate the coming of the kingdom. And as they anticipate the tribulation they're going to go through on earth. And so all those things, they don't, they don't relate to the, to the church at all, they relate to Israel. So if you put yourself back in Israel's mindset for service and whatnot, remember Israel was given a stewardship that was not dependent upon being saved. And so there were Jewish stewards. You could be high priest and not even be saved. And so uh, they, theirs was an earthly stewardship. It was based upon an earthly birth, uh, the requirements of an earthly life. If you had Jewish parents and you were in your particular tribe and you were serving. Uh, and so the rewards that they have that they're promised, millennial rewards that Israel's promised. Now of course only Jewish believers enter into the millennium. 
<coughs> Jewish unbelievers are going to be cast into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so I think if you take that approach going in to any study of Matthew 24 and 25, you actually do yourself a huge favor and you don't come into some of the conundrums that otherwise would bother you and I in a church age sense. Does that make sense? All right, thank you. And it's it's tough, you know, and, and I uh, I freely admit that if you go back and find a, a class from 20 years ago when I taught Matthew 25, I might have said something different uh, in a through the Bible class or than what I said in Life of Christ, than what I said just now. So um, go always go with the, the most recent one, because that's probably um, the oldest pastor you're going to get. All right, other questions tonight? Good to see y'all. Thanks for coming out, even though it's the blizzard of freezing cold uh, <laughs> Texas here. So. <clears throat> I tell you, there's uh, no any any other questions? Other questions we can answer. I, I love questions. I love looking at the scriptures. I love especially tough passages. I don't. I'm not afraid of any passage. The uh, the point is, or any manuscript or any archaeology discovery or anything that's going to come up, because um, the truth is the truth. And if there's something that's that's uncovered, if there's something, and if and if I learn that that I had something wrong, I want to know it, uh, so that uh, so that I can get it right the next time. As far as that goes, all right, Robert. Well, you ask for it uh-huh. um, somewhere <laughs> about Jephthah and his daughter. Yes, I think we've talked about this before, and I bumped up against it in some reading and study the other day, and I'm still confused about what happened there, the, the vow and everything. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to know your take. I've got a take, but I'll, I'd like to know yours on that. In Judges, I think it's chapter 11, uh, Jephthah and his daughter. Um, yeah, Judges chapter 11. He makes a vow that the first thing that comes out of his front door when he gets home is going to sacrifice to the Lord. And, you know, and But it turned out not to be a sheep or a goat or any. It was his daughter that, that came out. And so um, then, you know, now he's stuck because he made a vow. I don't think it was human sacrifice. I think that he dedicated her to the temple, dedicated her to tabernacle service, dedicated her, which was um, what the whole redemption of the firstborn was all about anyway. That uh, the Lord had uh, set apart the tribe of Levi and and in lieu of the firstborn dedication. So um, anyway, that's, that's my view on it. Uh, human sacrifice is abhorrent to the living God. And he elsewhere condemns it. Uh, so I don't believe that God would make an exception here for Jephthah and, and hold him to a, a human sacrifice kind of thing. So uh, anyway, that's that's my understanding of it. That and because when she gets together with her with her her friends, um, I get down here. So the daughters come out. So here uh, his daughter, verse thirty four. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and dancing. That's a whole other sermon right there on tambourines and dancing. <clears throat> now she was his one and only child. Besides her, he had no son or daughter. And uh, so uh, when he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. Uh, for I have given my word to the Lord, cannot take it back. And so uh, she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. And it doesn't say what that is. She knows what it is, and he knows what it is. The text doesn't say. And so uh, she said, let this be done for me. Let me alone two months that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity, I and my companions. Now, as if this wasn't already puzzling enough, uh, we're going to add this girl's virginity to the to the puzzle. And, I, and But I think that's the clue. I think that's the clue that unlocks the puzzle. Because... Um, She's going to be, I mean, if it's a human sacrifice thing, what difference does her virginity make? But the point is, I think, is, is that it's not a human sacrifice thing, that she is being devoted to the temple, or, or the tabernacle as the case may be, <clears throat> and that under this vow then she's going to be serving in the, in the tabernacle, she's not going to get married, she's not going to have children, she's not going to have a, a normal family life and all the things that, that a Jewish girl is going to be looking forward to as she, uh, as she grows up. So at the end of the two months she returned to her father who did to her according to the vow which he had made and she had no relations with a man. Thus it became a custom in Israel. And so that's the other thing too, that she had no relations with a man. He didn't kill her. He wasn't sacrificed here. This was her 
presentation to, uh, to the tabernacle. So that's my conclusion. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. So. That's way clearer than everything I was reading. Nobody, oh, good. Okay, nobody yeah. seems to know what to do there. And I, I honestly have never noticed that second uh, thing about her virginity. So mm -hmm. that, that clears it up for me. I think it does, yeah. To me, if that doesn't explain the circumstance, well, now I've got two puzzles that, that don't make any sense. So I let the second one explain the first one, and I think it reconciles pretty well. Yes, ma'am. Do you think that's sort of the where the Catholics get their thing with the? <laughs> Actually, no, um, they don't. Not from a Jewish source. Uh, the Vestal Virgins and the and the monks and the nuns and the things that came into the Roman Church. Actually, that came originally from the Babylonian religious system, and uh, and then it came from Babylon through Pergamum to Rome, and was a part of the Vestal Virgins of, of pagan Rome long before Christianity reach Rome. And so so they kind of, what happened was the Roman church did what they could to keep all of their Babylonian pagan customs intact, but it got tough after a Christian emperor outlawed paganism. So they started to give Christian labels. And so they wanted to keep worshiping the Queen of Heaven, so they just you know, called it Mary full of grace and kept worshiping the Queen of Heaven. And same thing with the Vestal Virgins, they, they, they turned deaconesses into nuns and uh, demanded their celibacy in, in that. I'm sorry? I wasn't asking you to. No, okay. Anyway, that's, that's kind of the origin on that. But it, it was a pagan thing, not, uh, not a Jewish thing, anything at all from the Old Testament. Yeah. All right. Good questions. Excellent questions. If you want more on that, by the way, look at the Daniel Revelation notebook. I put a lot of that material in Revelation 17, the Horror of Babylon chapter. And um, some good authors, I would include Clarence Larkin and in the 20th century and Alexander Hislop in the 19th century. He wrote a marvelous text called The Two Babylons. And he got some things wrong, he's criticized, and there needs to be an update to Hislop. Uh, but it's such an, an, an overwhelming text that it still has great value to read even with some of the, the deficiencies uh, in, uh, in Hislop's approach. So anyway... Well, join me. Good questions tonight. So uh, we'll uh, get more next week. Let's go to Philippians 1 and remind ourselves of what we were looking at. Paul had a conundrum and he didn't know which to choose. Because he said in verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if, and you know, there's a lot of ways you can express an if, but if I live in the flesh, in other words, if I get a few an extension to my mortality here, that means fruitful labor for me. And that's, uh, that's, that's a positive thing, because to live is Christ. The longer he gets to stay in the flesh, the longer he gets to bear fruit, and that's fruitful labor. And he says, I do not know which to choose, or I do not know what I will select. And uh, in a future tense, it's, it's kind of an interesting idiom that uh, that he does here in making a preference, a preference between two choices. Really, it's not. Uh, there's a lot of verbs for choosing. There's a lot of verbs that, and in fact, Calvinists love to camp on the election aspects of things. This is not that <laughs> verb uh, for choosing. This is really one of selecting a preference. If you had your druthers, which would you go with? You know, vanilla or chocolate, that kind of thing. And, and Paul says here, to live or to die. He says that's a tough call. I don't know. I don't know what to choose, okay? And so this then becomes a marvelous pattern for us. I gave it to you under uh, point five in the outline as Paul is thinking his way through his conundrum. And it's, it's, a, it's a useful thing to do. And uh, I know a lot of us do it. I do it, you do it, we probably all do it. Uh, if uh, you ever have a chance to, uh, to talk to yourself, I recommend it, okay? You can even answer yourself, that's fine. Um, if you start using a different voice for the, the, the voice that answers as opposed to the voice that, that's, that could be a problem. So come talk to me. Um, but, but here's the thing. The scriptures are real. And the Bible is teaching a real thing because often this is us. We, we're come to a point and I don't know what to do. You know, um, as far as maybe, you know, a job to take or a, a place to move to or just there's other decisions in front of us. And, and, and there's no 
3 Timothy 5, 5 that says, you know, do this, okay? And so we're praying for wisdom, we're praying for guidance, we want to have a conviction, we want to have a, a relaxed mental attitude about, uh, about the choices we make, and, and it may be in a lot of these conundrums, either option is, is fine, in, in the, what I call the discretionary will of God, all right? And I think... Um, of course, matters of life and death, that's, that's in God's hands anyway, so it's not like you really have a choice. But, but if you do have a choice and, and you want to surrender your choice to Him and say, okay, Lord, not my will but thine be done, you know, then you've got a real uh, a blessing to, to still, even if you're not choosing, you're still maybe rooting for one side or the other. You're still kind of a cheerleader for, okay, Lord, it's in your hands. I kind of wish it was this one, but I'll go with whatever. <laughs> All right? And so here we have it. And as we teach these doubtful things, or as we teach the, what I prefer to call the discretionary will of God, okay? Uh, when it was developed under the concept of doubtful things, I think the label itself caused more trouble than, than it helped. Because um, under any doubtful thing, the whole point is stop doubting. Don't doubt. Whatever is not a faith is sin, so quit doubting. Just come to a faith conviction, be happy about it, and move on to the next one, Okay? And so that's kind of the thumbnail for Romans 14. <clears throat> and it's a description of what we see here. Because if you're going back and forth between two choices, either one would probably be fine as long as you're doing it for the right reasons. Okay? So if you're eating meat sacrificed to idols, that's fine if you're doing it for the right reasons. It's not fine if you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Likewise, if you choose to abstain from meat sacrificed to idols, that's fine if you're abstaining for the right reasons. But it's not fine if you're abstaining for the wrong reasons. Okay? So the point is you got option A or option B, and either one can be done for right reasons, either one can be done for wrong reasons. And what we want to make sure is that what we're doing, we're doing for the right reasons at all times. And so uh, thinking out loud and talking out loud is fine. It doesn't mean you're wishy-washy. Paul's not wishy-washy. We studied this too with his travel plans. You might remember from, from, from 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Uh, Paul, his whole travel itinerary was up in the air. And he didn't know if he was going to go to Corinth first and then Macedonia, or Macedonia first and then Corinth, and it, which way it was going to go. And, um, and he said, look, as the Lord leads, okay, in the will of God. So uh, I think a lot of that happens here. So he says, if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know what I will choose. Uh, but I am hard-pressed from both directions. So he's got pressure coming both ways. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ. Who wouldn't? Okay? And that word for desire there in verse 23, that's lust. That's epithumia. Okay? And so that's, that's a strong desire. It's a lust. Yeah, I, I lust for heaven. You bet. Because uh, it means throwing off this body of sin. Hooray for that. Okay? And it means being face to face with Jesus Christ. And uh, so of course, that's a, that's a good lust. And I, that's very much better yet to remain in the flesh. And so you have all these back and forth, right? And you know, you say this, but then on the other hand, but then on the other hand, but then on the other hand, and you know, how many hands do you have? You, you, <laughs> it's just, it's going back and forth. And so he gets to the end of the passage, and then he talks himself into it. He says, convinced of this. Because he says, to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And that might be the biggest clue of all as he's cycling doctrine, as he's thinking it through, it, it, all of a sudden it strikes him. He says, you know, wait a minute. Two necessary things here, but here's one that's more necessary for your sake. And, and when it dawned on Paul, seems like to me anyway, when it dawned on him that for their benefit, for their edification, for their growth, he needs to stick around. And once that settled it, then he convinced himself. And so we have the patho uh, verb of verse 25, convinced of this, persuaded of this. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So he knows that. All right? And that's fun. That's fun. Although um, he knows that in verse 25, we'll see when we get to verse 27 that he still leaves the option open. <laughs> okay? 
Because in verse 27 he says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent. Well, wait a minute, Paul, I thought you knew, you just got done convincing us and convincing yourself that you knew you were going to be there again. And yet still he says, hey, anything can happen. I may know this and yet something else happens. Okay, God's in charge of that. So, I think there's a lot of lessons that we can learn with respect to this. We gave you the subpoints on Sunday. Continued physical life means the fruit of labor. It means the fruit of labor. And so this is the lust that's on the opposite side of the heaven lust that he has. There's two lusts here at work. He's, on, he's being pressed from both sides. And so there's the heaven lust and then there's the fruit lust for the Philippians. And they're, they're pushing at him. He's getting squeezed, we might say. And, uh, and there it is. And so that's a positive motivation. That's a positive motiv- motivation. I think sometimes we have selfish motivations for why we want to live longer. We have selfish motivations. We want to see whatever. Okay, My, grand- my great-grandmother wanted to see my mother get married. And so she wanted to live long enough to see my mother get married. And that was she, and she did, and she and she got to see four grandchildren get born, uh, get born, and and uh, and that. So people have different motivations. They want to see this. They want to see this. They got, you know, a bucket list. They want to, whatever. And and so a lot of times they're honestly just selfish reasons or carnal reasons. They're not sanctified that I can tell. But here's one clearly, to bear fruit on behalf of fellow believers, and uh, that's what he says here, and that becomes a. Uh, a motivation. Paul was squeezed from two directions with a lust to depart and to be with Christ. So the first lust was to stay and bear fruit. The other lust is to uh, to go and be with Christ. Who wouldn't want that? You know, I mean <laughs> how ideal. You know, you get things you're looking forward to and the wedding supper of the Lamb, I'm looking forward to it. Paul's looking forward to it. We're all looking forward to it, of course. You know, in any event. I told the story too on my wedding day. Ralph Braun teased me like, like he should, you know, but um, because I had an evening wedding, which was stupid, and the uh, all day long was just sitting around waiting for the evening. Okay, and so we had a prayer breakfast, uh, then we had another thing scheduled, and then there was a lunch at Olive Garden, and there was another thing scheduled, and they basically kept me busy all day and, and not running or something. But um, but we were sitting at lunch and Ralph Ron leaned over to me, the pastor, and he said, wouldn't it be great if the rapture happened right now? <laughs> you know? What do you, what do you say to that? You know? I, I mean, I survived Desert Storm, I survived the war, I came back, I really wanted to get married. And uh, and then he hits me with that. And theologically, I can't dispute what he's saying. Um, you know, humanly. Anyway. So there's the, uh, the aspect there. Um, so Paul was squeezed from two directions. Thirdly, putting his own desires aside, remaining in the flesh, is more necessary for the Philippians' sake. More necessary for the Philippians' sake. And I know we're kind of skipping through this and we're t- taking it a little bit rapidly and I'm not stopping to slug it out through a lot of the exegesis. And it'd be kind of fun if we did. There are some word plays in here. Um, some of the expressions for remaining and staying. Um, there's a lot of, uh, there's, there's meno and there's, there's uh, some compounds of meno that are at work. In fact, uh, some of it is even uh, redundant. Like when it says in verse 25, I know that I will remain and continue. That's a, a double use of, of uh, some of meno and a compound of meno there. Um, anyway, it's, it's, it's interesting the way it's, it comes out in the Greek, the way it's composed. Um, anyway, I'm not going to dig into that because I'm, what I'm really burdened by is the impact of verse 27 and following. Uh, so, But putting his own desires aside, remaining in the flesh is more necessary for the Philippians' sake. So we have have-tos and then we have more have-tos. <laughs> and then how do we prioritize the have-tos and the even more have-tos? Well, we start with the even more have-tos. And uh, it's more necessary for their sake. And uh, use that as a rule of thumb and say, all right, Lord, not thinking about myself, I'm thinking about others here, and this seems to be 
what's more necessary and uh, and leave it at, leave it at that persuaded of this necessity Paul's Philippian reunion will trigger their joyful progress and uh, so he knows that he says uh, for your progress and joy in the faith and uh, he's convinced of that your progress and joy in the faith and uh, that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. And so uh, he's only been there once. He's looking forward to his second visit in Philippi and uh, convinced of their progress. And so plays on words here as well and uh, reflections on, on terms that were used earlier in the chapter. Paul had talked about his own progress earlier when he said, I want you to know how my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So earlier in the chapter he was talking about his own progress in, in, in jail. Now at the end of the chapter he's convinced that the Philippians are going to have great progress in, uh, in the Lord. Great progress in joy in the faith. And then abounding. Abounding is a term that came up earlier in the chapter as well. That, uh, that, your, knowledge, that your love will abound still more and more in real knowledge and discernment. That's verse 9. Uh, he had had an earlier reference to the idea of abounding in verse 9 and he comes back to that theme again uh, on their behalf. So uh, we have it there. So that's A, B, C, and D. Now, point 6 then. Let's look at verses 27 and following, 27 through 30. Paul issues a powerful exhortation for the Philippians to apply until such time that he can be reunited with them. So he's convinced he's going to come and see him again and in the meantime, while they're waiting, while they're waiting, until he can get there, they have this letter to read, they're going to have uh, expectations while they're waiting for him. Verses 27 through 30. Paul issues a powerful exhortation for the Philippians to apply until such time that he can be reunited with them. And this, this exhortation, by the way, applies to them, applies to us, applies to Austin Bible Church, to any local church. Uh, believers individually, but more especially, I think, believers co- corporately, collectively, in a local assembly. And you'll see that here uh, because of the, the expressions that are found here. All right? So he says, only conduct yourselves, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This becomes a prime directive, it becomes order number one for a local church. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that's, that's pretty broad. That's pretty wide open. Okay? And uh, it, it's, it's the antithesis of legalism. You know, legalism would, would lay out a bunch of lists and rules and, and, and so forth. Uh, grace comes along and says, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. <laughs> and you talk about grace because, well, what's worthy? And, and it's not legalism. It's not have-tos. It's want-tos. It's what do you want to do that in your faith conviction is worthy of the gospel of Christ? And it leaves it in your uh, priesthood, in your fulfillment, in your love, in your, uh, in your maturity. And, uh, and I love that. And then it gives some um, suggestions. It gives some illustrations or it gives some, um, shall we say, uh, illustrations by which you're going to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I don't think the other things that are listed here uh, are definitive. In other words, I don't think they're defining how to walk worthy. I think that they're coinciding with walking worthy. We'll explain that as well. All right. So conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you. And so until he gets there, he's going to hear the report. I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So are these steps in how to walk worthy, or are these the results of a, of a flock where the believers are walking worthy? I believe they're the results. I believe it's the, it's the consequence, it's the report, it's what Paul's hearing. And when he hears this good report, he knows they're going to be walking worthy. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Unity, right? And, and, and it's, 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 
it's organic, it's natural, it's what happens, it's the consequence of believers walking worthily, worthy of the gospel, okay? It's not a, it's not a, uh, it, it's, it's not a, it's not legalism is what I'm trying to say, okay? Anyway, we'll get into more detail in the subpoints, and then hopefully it'll be clear, even if it's fuzzy now. Um, I think, but if you remember, the uh, in an earlier paragraph we talked about this. What is the result and what is the cause? What is the means and what is the result? When we talked about uh, you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness. And so we talked about that. We did a development on on those things and showed you that they were consequences, not means. I think it's something very similar here at the end of the chapter. So stay tuned and hopefully that case will be will be made. All right. So be like-minded. Strive together. And then it says, in no way alarmed by your opponents. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> you mean we're going to have conflict while we're doing all this? Yes. Absolutely there's going to be conflict while you're doing all this. In fact, uh, if a church is doing what it's supposed to be doing, uh, that's, you know, they're lining themselves up for, for maximum conflict in the process of that. So in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too from God. So if there's conflict, that's a good thing. It becomes a sign. It becomes a testimony. And, and you get to see it. They get to see it. Others, uh, other observers get to see it. And uh, it gets played out for what it is. I think, for example, the, the whole current events of what's happening here in Texas in this, shir- this church that gets shot up and, and what's happening. And it's in the news. And people are being interviewed. And there's a bunch of mockers and a bunch of you know haters that are out there and they're you know, they're asking, well, what good is prayer? Prayer doesn't do anything. You know, if prayer worked, then you'd still be alive. If prayer worked, then this church wouldn't have got shot up. And all this, you know, stupid stuff is these, these people that don't know anything are, are the loudest, I think, at, at spouting forth what they don't know. Okay? But because of that, what else happens? Then you get another side that gets interviewed. A reporter goes over to this other person and says, well, what do you think? This guy says prayer doesn't work. What do you think? And I have heard some amazing testimonies. I've heard Bible verses on Fox News. I've heard a testimony to eternal life when, when the, and it wasn't even a pastor, it was, it was just some guy talking about his hope of eternal life. And it was the funnest thing I've seen in the Fox News for a long, long time because Shepard Smith didn't know what to do. <laughs> he just he just was like, uh, and then he just kind of, it was an awkward moment of silence and, and then he just went back to his teleprompter and moved on to his next topic. And uh, to me, that's a sign. It's a sign of destruction for them. Why? Because they're the, they're the perishing ones. They're the perishing ones. And this is just a warning along the way. It's a sign. And when uh, the great white throne judgment is convened, they will remember this. This sign will be brought into evidence. And uh, every knee will, will bend. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All right. And that too from God. For to you, verse 29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake. There's a lot of things that have been granted. We're saved unto good works, prepared beforehand that we should walk in. Then what else has been granted? Not only the work that we should do, but also the suffering that we should endure. Not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Okay? That's a sign. It's been granted. It has been bestowed. It's what it means to name the name of Christ. He identified with us, we identify with Him. We name the name of Christ, we're going to fill up what's lacking, the the measure of what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. The church age is the fulfillment of that. So it has been granted to suffer for His sake. And and I I, I understand there's there's, uh, a health, wealth, and prosperity approach to things and there are, you'll meet them, you'll meet Christians that think that if you're suffering, there's something wrong with your faith. That if you're, some, if you're suffering, then what's wrong with you? And uh, what's your secret hidden sin? What are you not telling us, Job? And you know, they're going to they're gonna approach you like Job's critics approached him. And they're going to see suffering in your life and they're going to say, well, you must not love Jesus enough or you must not be tithing enough or you must not be serving enough or praying hard enough or holy enough or whatever. Because if you really love Jesus, then he wouldn't put you through this. That's the whole, you know, health, wealth, and prosperity, name it and claim it, and all this other stuff. God wants you to be happy. 
God has a marvelous plan for your goodness. Okay? No, it has been granted for you not only to believe in Him, okay, getting saved is just step one, but also to suffer. To walk the Christian walk, which means take up your cross and follow Him. So, since it's been granted, praise God for it. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So that's another clue, by the way. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So they've got two testimonies and uh, they'll have their third witness when they themselves go through it. Okay, So they saw it in Acts 16 when Paul and, and uh, Silas were thrown in jail. That night the Philippian jailer got killed, right? They were beaten, they were thrown in jail. The Philippians saw that. Then Paul left town. They haven't seen him since. But now they hear about it. Now they're hearing that he's in a different jail in a different town. So they saw it, now they hear it. Okay? And this is, these are some of the clues that we pick up on when we do the background of this book. When we prove that it was written earlier, not later, that he had one imprisonment in Philippi, this is now his next imprisonment that they're hearing about. So they saw it, now they hear it, and uh, they're going to get their third witness when they themselves go through it. They're, they're going to experience the same suffering, the same conflict of suffering. And uh, don't grumble about it. Don't bemoan it. Don't say it's not fair. Because, of course, it's not fair. That's not the point. <laughs> the cross wasn't fair to Jesus either, was it? Hey? It's not about fair. If God was, uh, you know, fairness is the lake of fire because we're all condemned. All right? So there's a, there's a lot here. I think this is a very powerful exhortation. And it starts with conduct yourself. No, it doesn't start with conduct yourself. It starts with only. <laughs> this may be one of the biggest onlys in the whole Bible. Only is a pretty big only. Okay? You know, only is a pretty big only. It's much bigger than the Galatian only. We, had a, we, we preached it and, and had fun with it, actually, in Galatians 3.2. You know, a lot of times when Paul says only, you wonder, did you mean that? <laughs> All right. Because here's the only. The only is Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Oh, is that all? <laughs> Only that? Worthy of the gospel. Worthy of something that is powerful unto eternal life. That's pretty worthy. So uh, Galatians 3.2. And if you ever, ever get excited about an adverb, if you ever get excited about, you know, monos is an adjective that means, uh, uh, means like the only begotten son, the monogenes, the monos, okay? Monos means one, like the monos genes, the only begotten son, or uh, mono, uh, as opposed to stereo, you get mono, right? Or mono, monotony, because there's only one tone of voice, this monotonous speaker just drones on and on. We've got a lot of mono, right? And, and the funniest one of all, my favorite, monosyllabic. Because a monosyllabic word, you know? But monosyllabic is not monosyllabic. So how does that happen? Galatians 3, uh, <laughs> Galatians 3, 2. And so you have monos, and then you have monon. This is a neuter. The neuter of monos. You could have a masculine, a feminine, or a neuter. The neuter is used adverbially. And that's what we have here. And so it's, it's only, or it's alone, but it's, it's applied to a verb, and so only is the best way to, uh, to render that. In Galatians 3, Paul is challenging them. He says, uh, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? So he asks a question, but he doesn't even want to know the answer uh, because he says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Okay, This is the, the monon, the only thing I want to find out from you. So don't answer that question from verse 1. Answer this question. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The only thing I want to know, answer me that. Answer me that. How did you receive the Holy Spirit? Okay? 
Today we would say, how did you get saved? Did you get saved by works? Did you get saved by grace? And then, are you so foolish? You know, he said he only had one thing he wanted to learn, and then he starts asking a whole string of questions here. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with a Spirit and works miracles among you, does he do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So he asked for one thing, and then he starts asking a whole string of questions. And it's curious to me, because here we've got another only. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Oh, is that all? Only. Because to me, what's the gospel worth? It's, it's infinite. I mean, it's a value that's, it's a, it's an infinite value for eternal life for whosoever will may come. Because it was a, an infinite sacrifice, the Father was well pleased to accept that sacrifice and to then execute all wrath on Jesus Christ so that you and I are not destined for wrath. Even the unbeliever that rejects the gospel and dies and goes to hell. He's not going to hell for his sins. Because wrath was applied to Jesus Christ. And so that is the, the value of the gospel that I'm supposed to walk worthy. Okay? And so this is, this is a big deal. This is, this, has, this is a message with impact. And uh, it, 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 it almost becomes um, a paradox or more than almost, you could think of it as a paradox, right? Because who's worthy? <laughs> the, the whole point to grace is that none of us are worthy. The whole point to grace is that we can't earn or deserve our salvation. That none of us is worthy. But then He saves us. Then He makes us worthy. Then He tells us to walk in a worthy manner. Anyway, to me this is, this is uh, it's a thrill. Okay? That, that we can approach the unapproachable, that we can walk worthy even though we're not worthy, that, uh, that we can fathom the unfathomable. All of these things uh, are, are, you know, the, the unbeliever's head might spin and say, well, you're, you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. You're, you're talking about opposite things. How do I approach the unapproachable? How do I fathom the unfathomable? How do I walk worthy? Because none of us are worthy until He makes us worthy. And then we can walk worthily. Remember, it's an adverb, so worthily is, uh, is also an adverb alongside of uh, only. So, conduct yourselves. What do we mean by conduct yourselves? In a manner worthy. Conduct yourselves. Now, there's a lot of verbs for conduct. Um, a lot of verbs for walking. There's verbs like peripateo for the Christian walk. There's verbs of doing. There's verbs of behavior. In fact, Lao and Nita in their lexicon, they got a whole section here of vocabulary that pertains to behavior and a wealth of wealth, really a variety of expressions and words and, and idioms that all reference behavior of some sort. <clears throat> but this one, uh, this one's powerful because this one reaches the Philippians where they are. It's a political term. In fact, it's a Greek word where we get the English word political. And so it's, it's uh, you can render, conduct yourselves, you can render that as live as citizens. It's a present mental imperative of polituomai. Polituomai, that's uh, right there. P-O-L-I-T-E-U O-M-A-I. And perfect timing because uh, Lewis is just getting introduced to uh, deponent verbs. These are the oh my verbs. They end in oh my. Okay? And uh, you see this oh my verb and that's what you say. <laughs> oh my. What is that? Politu oh my. And it's curious because these, these verbs, uh, they all... They look like they're middle voice, passive voice, but they're active in sense. They're called deponent that way. Um, and, and, or if it truly is a middle, as this appears to be a present middle imperative, we only have the middle voice in the New Testament for this verb. We don't have active or passive voice. 
uh, anywhere in the New Testament, then it, it, it carries a sense of something that I do, but then also something that I experience. So in the middle voice, I'm actively doing the verb, I'm also passively receiving the effects of that verb. And this is what polituomai is. So, so get political, right? Okay, just, just get political, be political. But be political in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And uh, the idea of get political, live as citizens, um, conduct yourself as a citizen of heaven. Because that's where your citizenship is. See, um, so conduct yourself in such a way. Live your life in such a way. Um, that's what this is. And so when you think about, and this might also help us too to consider polituomai and some of these other terms, I'll get it here in a moment. Um, think of this as, as a, uh, another kind of life that we might speak of. Zoe life, bios life, and politikos life. Think about your political life, okay? Because that really casts a whole different, uh, I think, point of emphasis. We have, we have a, of course, eternal life in Christ. We're not talking about that. We also have a temporal life. We have a biological life, okay? And, and we could discuss that. This passage doesn't, but we could. Because we all have a, a biological life in common. All of humanity shares a biological life in common. We have bios in common, meaning that we're going to be born, we're going to be raised by parents, we're going to take a spouse, we're going to have our own children, uh, we're going to get old, we're going to die, uh, and you know there might be some other details along the way, but we all follow the same course. That's our that's our bios life, okay? That's our bios life, but. And, and that's true whether you're an American citizen or you're an Ethiopian or you're a Filipino or you're Russian or whatever you are. You're born, you grow up, you die. I mean, that's, that's the course, okay? But we have vastly different political courses. See, last night I went and I voted because it was election day and that was my my activity. I was, I was a citizen operating in my citizenship on a day that is designated for the exercise of that civic function. Maybe civic's a good word to, to, to use in this consideration. Your civic life. What is, what is expected of you as a citizen? What is your civic duty? See? And so you have civic duties based upon your citizenship. And they're entirely different. American civics is different from Chinese civics. Or different from Saudi Arabian civics, or the civics, the, 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 the political laws of, of, of any culture you want to point your finger at. Okay? So this verb now being used of believers reminds us that we are, what's our citizenship? What is our, what is our polity? What, is our, um, what are our politics in the body of Christ? Well, we're a heavenly people. We have a heavenly citizenship. We're ambassadors for Christ. We have a heavenly economy. We have treasures in heaven. We lay up treasures in heaven. We make deposits in heaven. We also make withdrawals from heaven. We make purchases in the heavenly marketplace. And so uh, this is a verb that speaks to conducting yourself in a political, in a politically appropriate way. Okay? I almost said politically correct and that would have been bad. But in a politically appropriate way for your citizenship. What are you a citizen of? Okay? And by the way, this, if this is getting lost in our culture today, um, because I think there's a, obviously there's a movement to open all borders and, and you can live wherever you want and, and you know, the sovereignty of nations is becoming irrelevant and other things. And you can just be a law unto yourself and just, you know, ignore the laws you don't agree with. And I mean, we've got a real time of anarchy, I think, on our hands. But, um, but to the Philippians, this was huge. Because of every one of the cities Paul traveled through, Philippi was a Roman colony. Philippi, the citizens of Philippi were Roman citizens. And that was huge, okay? Thessalonians were not Roman citizens. Athenians were not Roman citizens. Uh, Corinthians were not Roman citizens. I mean, they may have had some scattered that were living there, but, 
But as a rule, Philippi was a Roman colony. It was settled by Roman soldiers. They were all given Roman citizenship. They conducted their business as a Roman colony. All right? And so that was huge. And that was a, a, a source of pride. It was a source of, of esteem that, was, uh, that had a value with it, which is why when they beat Paul and Silas, Roman citizens, uh, without trial, and, and uh, they were violating Roman law. That was a big deal. And so Paul's use of this verb in this, uh, in this verse is, uh, is significant. It's a huge attention getter. So conduct yourselves, live your life. Uh, the other use besides Philippians 1 uh, 27 of the verb is in Acts 23 1 in one of Paul's uh, repeated trials. Acts 23 1. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have polituamide. Okay? I have conducted myself politically. Brethren, I have operated politically with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. I understand, of course, he's speaking as a Pharisee to fellow Pharisees, to, as a Jew to fellow Jews, talking to the Sanhedrin. Okay, Do you think the Sanhedrin is concerned about the, uh, the legal observance of a, of a Jewish subject? Of course. That's what this is. He's on trial. And so, of course, this is a different kind of politics. This is now Jewish politics under... under uh, Jewish law. But he says, hey, you're not going to convict me in this court <laughs> because as far as law keepers goes, I'm the champ. He's the number one legalist they've ever heard of. And uh, anyway, lived with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And uh, it goes downhill from there. <laughs> the high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. So yeah, that's not going well. But that's the use of the verb. All right, uh, then uh, we have a noun, a cognate noun. The, the verb actually comes from the noun. The noun is polites, P-O-L-I-T-E-S, polites. And uh, this too is something that Lewis is being exposed to, uh, a taste noun like prophetes and uh, some of our other taste nouns. Uh, they're masculine, they look feminine, but they're masculine. Uh, number 4177, it's used four times in the New Testament. It's a word, that, it's a noun that means citizen. Okay? So if you have a noun that means citizen and you make a verb out of it, that, what does that verb mean? It means be a citizen, act as a citizen, operate in your citizenship. Exercise your citizenship. That might be a good way to render it. Exercise your citizenship. And uh, depending on context then, we'll know, is this Roman citizenship? When Paul appeals to Caesar and and uh, you know, gets a, gets to go to the uh, Supreme Court of Caesar. He was exercising his Roman citizenship, or uh, his Jewish citizenship before the Sanhedrin, or his uh, heavenly citizenship, which is what he's stressing here in Philippians. Uh, he's going to flat out say it in chapter three: "Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior." And so uh, we have the term citizen. That shows up in Luke, in Acts, in Hebrews, kind of as part of the evidence to Luke's authorship of Hebrews, by the way. Uh, Luke 15, 15. Don't need to spend a ton of time on these. We know what a citizen is. Um, the prodigal son, he went and... Uh, hired himself out to one of the polites, one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. So he's in a place he doesn't belong. He's not a citizen of this land that he's in. But he hires himself out to somebody that is a citizen there. Uh, same chapter, uh, no, um, different chapter, chapter 19 and verse 14. Um, so a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So when he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so he might know. 
in the business, what business they had done. Anyway, there's citizens there. Acts 21, 39. It's a fun verse. Acts 21, 39. Paul said, I am at his, another one of his trials. <laughs> Paul was about to be brought into the barracks and he said to the commander, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Then uh, you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. And Paul said, nope, not me. I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city. And I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. He's a Roman citizen of a leading city in the region. And uh, fluent in uh, Greek and Hebrew, probably Latin as well, I would expect. And uh, he gets an audience on that basis. Finally then, Hebrews 8.11. And this is a quote from the Septuagint from the Old Testament. Uh, what Israel can look forward to in the Millennial Kingdom. Um, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the, le- from the uh, least of them to the greatest of them. Anyway, it's a citation from Jeremiah 31. Finally then, uh, Philippians 3.20. This is a, a, another verb. Polit- uh, actually, it's a noun, a neuter noun, polituma. Strong's number 4175. It only appears once in the whole Bible, and it's here in Philippians, Philippians 3.20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we so our polituma is from heaven. We have a polituma. We are polites. We should polituamai in a manner worthy of the gospel of, uh, of Christ. For our polituma is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Understand that. We, our citizenship is in heaven. While we're here, we are aliens and strangers. This world is not our home. We were delivered from the realm of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And uh, we need to you know, uh, never lose sight of that. If, uh, if you ever travel internationally, you recognize it's good to be home, <laughs> okay? And uh, you get back to America and you put your feet on American soil and you want to kiss the American soil and say, thank you, Lord, uh, because uh, where I've been is not here. And, uh, and, you, and you notice those things. And then um, there's other aspects. When, when you're somewhere you don't belong and, and you don't fit in and, and they're not speaking your language because it's actually... You're not speaking their language. You're in their land, but you're not speaking their language. And then uh, you, you recognize there's different customs and practices and expectations and standards and all kinds of things. And you say, you know, it's not where I belong. And uh, if the more heavenly minded we are, the, the, uh, the less vulnerable we're going to be to be conformed to this age. And that's, that's another aspect. So we're eagerly waiting for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. The next event on the calendar is the rapture of the church, and we're waiting for that. We're eagerly waiting for that. And any moment now, uh, the transformation is going to take place. And in the twinkling of an eye, we're going to be glorified into the image of Christ. We, and if we're still physically alive when that happens, then we won't physically die. We get that transformation that takes place. And I uh, pray that it's tonight. I'm looking forward to that. All right, I'm out of time. Um, we'll pick up on this on Wednesday, on uh, Sunday morning, Lord willing, rapture pending. Don't let me forget, I do want to read a quote from the uh, Bible Knowledge Commentary, and I want to read from one of the church fathers, one of the early uh, apostolic fathers. It's the Epistle to Diognetus. It's not Bible, it's not New Testament, it's not God-breathed and inspired, but it conveys this whole impact of citizenship that, uh, that Paul's writing about here in Philippians that clearly had impact on believers in the first two centuries of the church. So uh, I want to read that and share that for you as well. It's a blessing. We've read it before, but uh, it's good to review it again. So anyway, stay tuned for that. Father, I thank you for your blessing. I thank you for tonight.
Thank you for the Word of God. I pray, Father, that as we have studied it, we would understand it, and that you would give us the full understanding, Father, in wisdom for application. Uh, remind us what it means to operate as a citizen, and uh, particularly a heavenly citizen, worthy of the gospel with which we have been called. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.